Let's uh, open our Bibles now, if you have one, to Matthew chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible, our passage is in the bulletin as well, Uh, Matthew chapter 11. We're going to read together verses 16 through 24. Matthew 11, verses 16 through 24. Hear God's word. To what can I compare this generation? They are like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to others, We played a flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, Here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her actions. Then Jesus began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to the skies? No, you will go down to the depths. If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. This is God's word. So we have been uh, in a a, a several-week series on objections to the Christian faith. Uh, This is the last in that series. Um, Just a reminder to you that if you want to ask questions uh, after the sermon uh, for clarification or you want to challenge something said, that's fine. Uh, You can text me at 905-517-0936. That number is in the bulletin. Should you want to text me a question, you're of course free to raise your hand and, and ask it as well. Some people just don't like to do that. Anyhow, So here we are in the last, in a series of messages, basically trying to address those most difficult objections that people have to the Christian faith. And remember, we've been saying week after week after week, these aren't just problems with Christianity that non-Christians have. These are problems that Christians have too. They wrestle with them as well. They may wrestle with them from the perspective of faith rather than the perspective of unbelief, but they're they're problems for them nevertheless. Problems such as, uh, why believe in God if there's no evidence that He exists? You can't see Him, you can't contain Him in in a test tube and analyze Him. How do you know He's there? Why would you believe in something you cannot see? Why would you trust this old book like the Bible, and what it has to say about God. Why would you bother doing that? It's, it's a, a myth, isn't it? A, a, a collection of stories written by a bunch of men, a whole many, bunch of many years ago. What about hell? What about this concept of hell, that there is a place of judgment, eternal conscious judgment for one's sins committed, one's uh, uh, sins committed in this life? That's a pretty tough thing to swallow. And of course, last week, I think we covered the, the real biggie, the hardest one of all, evil and suffering. A world's full of hurt. God is supposed to be a good God. How do we reconcile that? 
So those are the things that we've talked about in these last weeks. And what I've been trying to demonstrate week after week is, is that the Christian understanding of these hard issues is more reasonable than we may think, at least initially. That Christianity, believing the, the Christian faith, believing that Jesus is the Son of God and putting your trust in Him and all that, is actually more reasonable than people may think it is at first. That's what we've been trying to demonstrate. And yet, here's what's remarkable, right? You can give a great argument about the existence of God, about the divinity of Jesus Christ, about the truth of the resurrection and the facts of it and all that kind of stuff. You can, you can do a great job and people still reject it. Why? They'll say that there's not enough evidence. They'll say that it's not logical enough. Is that, is that really what it is, though? I mean, here's Bob, here's Sally. Bob and Sally both don't believe in Jesus. And you share the gospel with them. You tell them about Jesus. They have objections. You address their objections, etc. And after a lot of talking and a lot of sharing the faith and a lot of prayer and a lot of hard work, Sally accepts the gospel and Bob still doesn't. What does that mean? Does that mean that Sally is dumber than Bob, like she was willing to drink the Kool-Aid and Bob was smart enough not to? Or is it switched? Sally's smart <laughs> and she believed the truth and Bob, mm, he's not smart enough to understand it and accept it. Why does one person believe and another person doesn't? Now, some of you are from what's called the Reformed tradition of Christianity, and you're well-trained and versed in it, and so you're, there's a word ringing in your, in your mind right now. It's called election, the mysterious doctrine of election. When we don't know how to figure something out, we go to the doctrine of election. And you know what? The doctrine of election is true. It's biblical. Those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, sorry, I'm not going to explain it to you this morning because it's more complicated than that. Yes, the doctrine of election is, is sort of the bedrock issue at stake here, but th there is a lot more that can be said. It is too simple to simply appeal to this doctrine. What we're going to do this morning is we're going to think about unbelief. We're going to look at this from the human perspective, not the divine perspective, and we're going to think about the ingredients, what you could call the ingredients of unbelief. These are the components, the constituent parts of unbelief. Is the non-Christian simply an unbeliever because they're unconvinced? That's what I used to think. I used to think that basically maybe they haven't heard a real cogent argument about Christianity yet. And what they need is, is they need a really good cogent argu argument about Christianity. And once they hear that, ta-da, they'll, they'll accept the gospel. That is so naive. So incredibly naive. I, I was introduced when I went to seminary to a, a philosopher and theologian by the name of Cornelius Ventil. And one of the things I learned from him and, and, and the, Christian, the whole Christian world really is starting to understand more and more is that unbelief does not equal no belief. Let me say that again because that is a really important thing for us to remember. Unbelief does not equal no belief. In other words, it's not like you have faith here 
and no faith here. You have believing in something here and not believing in anything over here. No, what, what, is, what is true is this. Unbelief actually is a positive power. It is a positive force. It's not just a lack of understanding or a lack of information or a lack of, of the ability to overcome uh, obstacles uh, to your logic. No, not at all. Lack of belief is just like belief. It is a positive force. And we're going to look at that from this story this morning. You'll see in the, in the bulletin a little outline of this story uh, that we read in the gospel according to Matthew, where Jesus teaches us about the positive nature of unbelief. And uh, we're going to follow the outline um, uh, of this passage broken down by, uh, by Tim Keller. We're going to follow his outline. I'm going to have say some things differently, but, but it's basically he, his breakdown of this passage that we're going to follow. We're going to discover the power of unbelief, the character of unbelief, and the solution to unbelief. Those are the three things we're going to see in this text together. So let's hop to it. Number one, the power of unbelief. In verse 21 of this passage, Jesus says this, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. And then in verse 23, he mentions Capernaum, and he says, Woe to you! If the miracles that have been performed in you uh, had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. It wouldn't have been hit with judgment the way it was. What's Jesus saying? Jesus describes these three towns, and these are three of the towns in which Jesus did much of his ministry while he was on earth. He spent a great deal of time in Galilee and in these cities and in these towns, and he performed many, many miracles there. He did things like heal people. He did things like raise people from the dead. He did things like feed thousands of people. He did all these kinds of miracles, and yet, and yet... Even seeing these miracles with their own eyes, people refused to believe. They rejected him anyway. Now, let's think about this. People say that to follow Jesus, to, to be a Christian, means to take what's called a leap of faith, right? You've heard that phrase before? You've got to take a leap of faith, meaning generally what they mean is despite the evidence to the contrary, even though there's evidence to the opposite of Christianity, and even though there's not really, really any evidence in favor of, of Christianity, you need to ignore reality, you need to shut your eyes, and you need to just blindly leap into the arms of Jesus and hold on to Him anyway. And right here, Jesus is saying, that is absolute nonsense. That is nonsense. That is not what He expects of us at all. Jesus didn't walk into these cities. He didn't go to Chorazin. He didn't go to Bethsaida. He didn't go to Capernaum and say, Good morning, everyone. I am the long-lost Messiah that you have been waiting for. By the way, I am also the divine Son of God. Put your trust in me. Thank you very much. He didn't just say, Come on, believe it. Come on, honest. I am. No, really. I promise would I lie? He didn't do that. Jesus gave evidence. He performed remarkable miracles. He pro 
he preached with incredible authority. He did all these things, and yet people still rejected him. I don't know how familiar you are with the New Testament and the Gospels, but at the end of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 28, there's a story where Jesus, after his resurrection, he's been killed, he's been raised from the dead by God, he has been resurrected, and he has been meeting with his disciples over several weeks. And finally, just before he ascends to his father, he meets with them again. He gathers them together at a mountain, and he meets with them, and it says that they, they saw him and they fell down and worshipped him, but some doubted. These are people who saw Jesus in the flesh. They probably, many of them, touched him. They were, they were the people who saw him cook a fish and eat it and swallow it. And he wasn't a ghost, okay? He was, he was the real deal with them in the flesh. And it says that they still doubted. You see... Look, we flatter ourselves. We people, we modern people, we flatter ourselves when we say, you know, we just need more evidence. Like, someone would say, you know, if, if, if you cut off my arm right here or cut off somebody's arm right here and it fell to the floor and then you said, in the name of Jesus, be healed and that arm leapt up from the ground and reattached itself to a person's uh, uh, body and they were completely healed, well, then I would believe. And Jesus says, I did that. That's exactly what I did. Here's the point. There is a power to unbelief. Lack of evidence is not your problem. It, it may be part of the problem, but it's not your main problem. Your main problem is that you have this powerful force called unbelief at work in you that needs to be dealt with. Okay, that's point number one. Unbelief is a powerful force. Second point, what's the character of this unbelief? If it's this powerful force at work in us, what, what's it like? How can we identify it? Because you can't fight a force if you don't know what it is you're fighting, right? Verses 16 and 17 gives this illustration that Jesus uses to explain the character of unbelief. He says, Jesus says this, what can I compare to what, sorry, to what can I compare this generation? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to others. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. What's going on here? Jesus is talking about a very common thing in rural first century life. It's this, okay? You live in a village, and during the day, the moms and the dads, they go into the marketplace and they do their business. They go about their business, the trading, the selling, the buying, all that kind of stuff. And of course, the children would be in the marketplace as well. And while their parents are doing stuff, the kids would play. They would get together and they would play a game. And of course, in village life back then, there's really only a couple of things that are all that interesting, and that's basically weddings and funerals. Those were big village events, right? And they were exciting, and they were fascinating, because at weddings, you saw men dance. Whoa. And at funerals, you saw women wail. Whoa. And so when kids got together and they said, hey, we're going to play a game together, they, then uh, the, Jesus is saying, here's what's happened. You know, the one, one kid sits, stands up and says, hey, let's play a game. Get everybody gathered again, around. Let's play wedding. And they start 
playing a happy song. Maybe they have a flute and they start playing it, or maybe they're just whistling it or whatever. But, and the other kids are supposed to dance, and, and, and someone stands up and says, like that, no, I don't want to. That's a happy song. I don't want to play wedding. That's a dumb game, wedding game. I don't want to play that. I'm sad. We don't want to do that. And so the ringleader says, oh, okay, well, you don't want to play wedding. Okay, let's play funeral. All right, you, get, you guys go over here. You're going to be the women that are wailing, and you're going to be the dead guy over here, okay? And they, pull, I don't know, they just start whistling a really sad song or singing a sad song, whatever, and they play a dirge, okay? And someone, someone objects to that. One of the kids says, ah, that's a dumb game. I don't, it's not, it's sad song. I don't want a sad song. I don't want to play that silly game. Forget it. And so they can't play a happy game, they can't play a sad game, neither game is any good. And Jesus says this, by giving us that illustration, he's saying, spiritually speaking, people are like little brats. We're like children behaving like brats. This is kind of ironic. I'm not saying this child is behaving like a brat, but there's some serious wailing and screaming and I'm very unhappy with things right now. Now, this time, I know I, I probably give too many parenting illustrations, I confess, that's true, but this time it's legit because we're talking about children and Jesus is doing it too. You've got a child who's got a birthday coming up it's, and, and they're going to have a birthday party and they're oh so very excited and they talk about how great this birthday party is going to be and they're going to do this and they're going to do that and they're going to get this present, they're going to have that cake and all that stuff. And the birthday comes around and the kids come over and at some point you're playing a game, maybe it's pin the tail on the donkey and little Johnny, who's supposed, whose birthday it is, they lose the game and the other kid, some other kid who attended the party wins. And what does little Johnny do? He runs off to his room and he slams the door in a snit. And if this is your first child, you're all concerned and worried about it because you don't understand why this is happening. And so you try to go off and talk to Johnny and reason with Johnny. And you sit on Johnny's bed and you say, what's wrong? And you say, I don't like the cake. It's stupid. And the presents are dumb. And I'm not even friends with all that. I don't want this party. I hate this party. And you say to the child, you say, Johnny, what are you talking about? You've been talking about this party forever. You can't wait to have this party. You're loving this party. And they say, harumph, I'm not going back out there. And again, it's your first child. So you think that reasoning will work. But you soon realize that you can't convince them because the party's not going their way. And here in Jesus' story, this song is wrong. That song is wrong. In other words, there's always something wrong. Because the problem isn't the song. The problem is that it's not their song, you see. They're not in charge. Things aren't going their own way, and so they don't want to play. Did you notice in verse 18 and 19, Jesus says, John, speaking about John the Baptist, John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. John the Baptist was the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. Jesus called him that, and he called him that because John was the one who was preparing the way for the Messiah. But John, if you read about John's autobiography, not his autobiography, but his biography, John was an austere man. He was a severe man. He probably was not tons of fun to hang around, okay? John came calling people to repent. He came saying, the axe is already at the root, 
and those that do not repent will be cut off and they will be thrown into fire. And he called people to repent. You see, John played a dirge. He called people wicked sinners in need of repentance, in need of a Savior. And he played this dirge and people hated him for it. And Jesus says, the Son of Man, speaking about himself, he says, I came and I came to party. I turned water into wine at a wedding. I spent time with sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes. I was always going out to dinner parties and people looked at me and I said, I'm here to, to bring the love of God into your lives. I'm here to sacrifice my life for you and to show you just how much God loves you. I am the Messiah. I am proclaiming good news to the poor and forgiveness of sins for many. I love you. I've come to rescue you. Jesus came playing a flute and people hated him for it. Why? Because we're not in charge. We have this reason to object to him. We have that reason to object to him. We will always find a reason because the problem is not whether it's a sad song or a happy song. The problem is it's not my song. Everybody wants to beat wants to dance to the beat of their own drummer. This is a huge insight, friends. Philosophers are really only starting to, to really grasp it in the last, I know it sounds like a long time to you, 50 years or so, but that's a really short time in the history of human thinking. Ventil is, he's the guy, and he's demonstrated that Nobody's neutral, okay? Nobody is without bias. Nobody is without prejudice. We all come with our biases to these questions. Imagine that you had a friend. Okay, this is a famous example, a famous illustration. Imagine that you had a friend who said, I'm dead. They were convinced that they were dead. And you were, of course, worried and concerned about their mental health, and you tried to convince them, no, you're not dead. You're quite alive. You're standing right here in front of me, Ty. No, I'm, a, I'm dead. So what you did was you took the, the three greatest medical journals ever produced, and you did tons of research in those medical journals showing them that it is absolutely impossible for dead men, dead people, to bleed. And you pull out the research and you show them the research and you, you uh, demonstrate to them that, that dead, men do not, dead people do not bleed. And you say to them, now, do you believe that? Do you agree with that? And they say, absolutely. And then you take out a knife and you grab their hand and you slice it and they start bleeding. And, and you say to them, now, what does this prove? And they said, oh, dead men do bleed. The point is, when we're committed to a position... Almost no evidence to the contrary will be sufficient to change our minds. And so if you say, I must be in charge of my life, the one thing I cannot lose is my autonomy. Fine, I'll give up the occasional Sunday morning and sit in a service with a bunch of people if I have to. Okay, fine, I'll cut a check. What's it cost to be a part of this team? Okay, I'll pay. If you say, fine, part of my job is I'm supposed to read this book once in a while, I'll crack it occasionally. And you do all those things, but you say to yourself, but the one thing is, is I, I must be in control of my life. 
you will not give Christianity a try. You simply will not believe the gospel. You won't. Aldous Huxley, some of you maybe have heard of him. He wrote a phenomenal book, Brave New World. Wrote a lot of other weird stuff too, frankly. But he was brilliant. He was a philosopher and a writer. He's, he, there's a quote here by him on the, end of, uh, on the front of your bulletin. He says this, I had motives for not wanting the world to have a meaning. Consequently, assumed, I assumed that it had none and was able without any difficulty to find satisfying reasons for this assumption. For I myself, as no doubt for most of my contemporaries, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation. Liberation from a certain system of morality. We objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. There was one admirable, admirably simple method in our political and erotic revolt. We could deny that the world had any meaning whatsoever. So here's what Huxley is saying. We did not want to submit to an outside law. I discovered sex when I was in university, and I really, really liked it. And if there was an outside law that told me that I was not supposed to have sex until certain conditions were met, i.e., I had married... I did not want to submit to that outside law. Therefore, I came up with reasons for why there could not be a God so that I could continue living my life the way I wanted to. And that's how we do it. That's how we do it. See, the gospel comes along and says, you are incompetent to run your own life. And you have to give your life to Christ. He paid the sins that you committed on the cross in, for, uh, on, on your behalf, in your place. He died paying for those sins and he has lived a perfect life of obedience to God on your behalf and you need to give your life to me. But if you are committed to self-rule, running your own life, running your own show, being in charge of your own game, you will never, ever, ever hear that. You will always find a reason to get out from underneath it. That's the character of unbelief. Third thing, what's the solution? So what's the solution? If that's the character, how do, we, how do we deal with this from our perspective? Jesus says something very interesting in verse 19. It almost seems disconnected, right? He says, the son of man came eating and drinking, and they say here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And then he says, but wisdom is proved right by her actions. Hmm. What an interesting statement. Wisdom is proved right by her actions. What is Jesus talking about? The solution to the problem of unbelief is the wisdom of the gospel. Okay, well, what does that mean? It means a couple things. The first thing it means is this. If you continue in your incompetence, if any of us continues in our incompetence, if, if any of us continues to say, you know what? Really, I do know what's best for me. I understand what's right for me. I, I can run my own life. If we continue that way, we will pay the price of our sin being found out. What I mean by that is, look, a business under bad management, it goes under. That's just the consequence of bad management. 
And when we refuse to give our lives to Jesus and we say, I will continue to manage my own life, we are going to discover, as Numbers 32, verse 23 says, our sin will find us out. In other words, our sin will be its own punishment. It will beat us up. We will run into... Look, wisdom is being in touch with reality. When you're not wise, you're out of touch with reality. When you don't submit to God and allow Him to direct your life, you are out of touch with reality. The problem is, is that reality just keeps breaking in on your life, you know, rearing its ugly head. You say, I'm in charge. I can walk through walls. Go ahead and give it a try. All of a sudden, reality breaks in and hits you in the head. So that's the first thing. But the second thing is, the second thing is, you need to learn to embrace both tunes. You need to learn to embrace both tunes. Or you could say, play both games. The funeral and the wedding. The dirge and the flute. Here's what I mean. I said before that John the Baptist played the dirge, right? He said, look, you need to realize you're a sinner. You need to realize that you're a rebel against God who has to lay down his arms. You have to stop denying his authority. You have to admit your powerlessness, turn from it, and repent. That's a dirge. Look, life is a dirge. That's the reality. Life is suffering. There's brokenness. Being wise means embracing that reality, that truth, not ducking it, not bucking it. Not trying to avoid it, but rather coming to grips with it, admitting it. Talk to anyone who's ever made any progress in, in overcoming their addiction. The very first step they have to take is, I am, I am powerless over my addiction. Well, just change the word addiction to sin, and it's all of us. You are powerless over your sin. You are not the person you should be. You're not even the person you want to be most of the time. That's the dirge. You've got to embrace that. But that's not the only tune you need to embrace. You need to embrace the flute. Because Jesus comes along and he says, yes, you are a rebel. Yes, you are a sinner. But look at me. I came to you while you were a sinner, while you were a rebel, to be with you and to live for you, and ultimately even to die for you so that you can live with me under my gracious rule. And I've proven that I'm trustworthy because I gave my everything for you. You can give your everything to me. That's the dance. That's the celebration. You're more loved than you ever dared hope. You know, think about a wedding. What's great about a wedding? One of the great things about a wedding is they're fresh starts, right? You get these two people with past lives who come together to start together a new life. The gospel is that. The gospel is a new start, a new beginning. It's a new reality. In fact, it's, Jesus would say it's true reality. This is wisdom. So if you're here, I'm going to talk to two different people. I'm going to close by talking quickly to two different people. First of all, skeptical friend. Some, just because you're here doesn't mean you're a Christian. Just because you've been here lots of times doesn't mean you're a Christian. Underneath, you could still be a skeptic. If you're skeptical, don't try to figure everything out all at once. 
But today, leave here today trying to see your biases, trying to see your prejudices, trying to, to uncover them. Doubt your doubts, okay? Be willing to doubt your doubts. Look, imagine if you were a judge presiding over a case where the president of a company is on trial and he's the president of a company that you have invested heavily in and if he goes down, you go bankrupt. Wouldn't you be biased? You'd be biased in a case like that, right? Well, the same is true right here. If Jesus is who he says he is, if he really is God in the flesh, that means something. If it's true, it means you have to do something. Have you ever heard of Amelia Earhart? Amelia Earhart was a woman who was going to fly around the world solo, and she flew out over the Pacific, and she disappeared, and nobody ever found her, and nobody knows what happened. Interesting piece of history, right? Now, what if on the news tomorrow it said, uh, truth about Amelia Earhart's disappearance finally uncovered. It turns out she ran out of fuel and her plane crashed in the Pacific. Does that change your life at all? No, right? Not a bit. You go, interesting piece of history. But that's not how it works with this. If Jesus is the Son of God, if He lived for you, if He died for you, then, then the answer the issue has eternal consequences. Just admit your bias. Just admit that. Admit that there's a cost to Christianity being true. But don't let it stop you, you see. Don't let that stop you. Already in the Old Testament, way back in the book of Deuteronomy, God said something very beautiful to His people. He said, if you seek the Lord your God, you will find Him. If you look for him with all your heart and with all your soul. And Hebrews 11 says, God rewards those who earnestly seek him. If you openly and honestly seek him, he will be found by you. And then Christian friends, those of you who have said, yes, I do believe this. I have held on to this. I, I'm not... I'm not in control of my life anymore. Jesus is. How, how's your submission? <laughs> how's the submission part of your life going? Are there parts of your life where you're like, Jesus has all of me, and then there are other parts of your life where you're like, Jesus has a considerable, considerable portion of me, <laughs> and other parts of your life where you're saying, Jesus, hands off. Is it your financial life? Is it your sex life? Is it your leisure life? Is it your business life? Look at what he did. He didn't, he didn't come and just give you his intellect. He didn't come and give you his obedience and his morality. He didn't come and just give you his, his love. He came and gave you his everything. All he is and all he was, he gave it all up on the cross. He lost the love of the Father for you. You can trust him to give all of yourself to him. Let's pray. Father, teach us to love you. Teach us to submit ourselves to you. It is an ongoing thing, the life of submission to your lordship is an ongoing thing. It happens in a very 
profound and stark and monumental way when we, when we put our faith in you, for sure, but it is something that goes on over the course of our entire lives. Be with all of us wherever we're at this morning. Those of us who don't know you as Savior, fulfill the promises of your word and reveal yourself to them if they would just seek you truthfully and honestly. Show yourself to them. And to those of us who do know you already, Father, empower us, enable us to give ourselves even more completely and fully to Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.